Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustained Open Source Design, the podcast where we talk about open source design and all things in between. I'm very excited to be here today with our guest. Before we go on and introduce him, I want to make sure you know who the other voices are that you'll be hearing on this podcast. I am Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. Hi, everyone. And we also have Victory Brown for the first time. Victory is joining us from Nigeria. She's a member of the Sustain UX Working Group and also has been to OSCA several times and is a big Drupal community person. Victory, it is so good to have you on. How are you doing today? Hi, Chad. I'm good. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming. And we also have Memo Esparza. Memo, how are you today? Hello, I'm great. Doing great this Monday and happy to be here with John. Happy to have you here. Memo, of course, outed the name of our guest. Our guest today is Bjorn Ballas. Bjorn is joining us today from Germany, where he works for KDAB. And he has been a longtime designer in the open source space, working with KDE, LibreOffice, and dozens of small projects, been involved all over the place. He also co-founded Open Usability 20 years ago, so we're looking forward to talking about that. Bjorn, how are you today? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited. Let's see what this turns out to be, <laughs> if we find something interesting yeah. to talk about. I hope so. I mean, I hope that your career is interesting to you. So let's find out. How did you get involved in design and open source together? Can you talk a bit about that? So I studied psychology, but before that, I also studied construction engineering. I stopped that after a short time, but this sort of reflects that there are two hearts in my breast. So I do have this engineering kind of thinking, but I'm also extremely interested into people and how they behave. That was in the late 90s. And I had the luck that I was able to find Psychological Institute where I studied, which was one of the first ones in Germany to introduce something which we now all know about. Yeah, so that's sort of the UX thing where we think about how do humans interact with machines and so on and so on. But at that point, that was sort of something you only knew this basically from aircrafts and stuff like this, because it was just simply too expensive to have all these aircrafts come down all the time. So you sort of figured out at that point that you had to do something about the usability of those machines to not, you know, yeah, well, a lot of people died there as well. So that was basically where it was known from. Also, this was before the dot-com bubble. So computers were still sort of not everywhere. We didn't have a computer in our pocket all of the time. So unthinkable at that point in time. And that sort of kicked me in right away. So it was like the first time I entered a lecture there, it was like, wow, this is actually what I'm going to do. And this is exactly how I, for me personally, can combine those two souls in, in myself and become sort of an engineer for people and for, for the technologies we use all of the time. So that's one side of the story. That's sort of how did I become the UX usability guy. 
And there's a second side of the story. And that's why I sort of become an open source and privacy activist, which I would call myself. That's actually more or less by incident. It was like one of my best friends. He studied somewhere where KDE developers in the very, very beginning, it was like the dot zero, uh, zero dot whatever version. He showed me on his computer, look what you can do. You don't only have to use Windows. And I was like, why, why should you do this? Yeah. And so I was talking about the idea about open source and the problems of delivering source code as closed source about trust. Can you trust something you can't read? No, you can't. So you have to trust into those companies that provide those technologies. Uh, so thinking about all these problems that arise with this combination for a long time, I started, was like in the late nineties when I had these experiences. And I think it was in 2001 or two when they finally published the contact suite on KDE. So that was the combination of emails and calendar and contacts into one application that was talking to each other. That was the point in time where I said, okay, now sort of KDE has everything. I need to work on a daily base with a computer. Yeah, that was where I sort of started to dig into these, into using Linux. And then at some point in time was accident again. It happens that I moved back to Berlin and here in Berlin, there was actually quite an interesting scene of people, you know, doing usability. But there was one guy, he and his girlfriend, he was running a UX company at that point in time. And he and his girlfriend had a bed and she was saying, look, Linux is better. And he was saying, no, Windows is better. Yeah. And as he has a UX company, he decided to do what is most natural for us to run a user test. Yeah. And at that point in time, so if he was testing Windows, against a KDE system. Yeah, and he found out that there was no winner. Yeah, because some things Windows was much better in and some things KDE was much better in. This alone was kind of a thrilling experience. And as I happened to work in his office, not for him, but, you know, sharing a co-working space, we ended up to sort of think, well, there's something we can improve. I mean, that's open source. It's something we can do ourselves. And so we started to sort of get in contact with the KDE community and we gave talks on the KDE Academy about sort of this study we were doing there or he was mainly doing there. And this is how it sort of all started. And we said, oh, we somehow need to help free software and what can we do? And so we started to set up a EV in Germany. So the legal framework for an initiative, which we called open usability at that point, it's not active anymore. Yeah, so that's sort of part of uh, open source design history there. And we were actually one of the first ones. And what we were offering was basically guidance to the projects to help them to understand what they can do, how they can build up structure. We were doing hands-on. So I was designing tons of software at that point in time. But more or less, we were sort of helping these projects to set up the, the structures we now have. And I was doing this a lot for KDE as sort of my... The main project I was working in over the years and also for LibreOffice, I think you had Heiko on the show before, and I, I kind of feel that he's sort of my child and those people working at KDE, I sometimes have this feeling they are sort of my grandchilds of the, the work we started that then 20 years ago. I just love how you are a psychologist first, and also you consider a designer and you consider you a designer of yourself, not for the craft. Because the choosing of color palette, but you also 
like consider yourself a designer because of the people. And I think that's really, really valuable. I'm interested to know how do you see this perception of designers about themselves outside of the craft? How has been your experience with that throughout your career? Like, do you think it's something hard for designers to consider themselves designers without having to touch any of the aesthetics first, at least? I think the design is actually a broad field still. I mean, you have those guys that are sort of much more close to being an artist and they are extremely important for creating a good product because they are the ones that can give the special feeling to a product. But you'll also need those guys and that's what I consider myself to be more. I'm not a good visual designer. I'm not an artist in any way. But there is some underlying structures that, you know, are very close to how people think, how our brains work. And we have to understand those things as well, where it comes to the functional design of products. And this is also something which you can much more easy test within experiments, within user studies, and you can learn a lot. I always say, when we started with open usability, we made things only worse because at that point in time, all the products had a maximum of usability or user experience because they were made by geeks for geeks. Yeah, they considered configurability on the code level to be something that was a good part of the usability because they were taking the program and if, if it wasn't doing what they were expecting, they took the source code and changed it to their needs. This is how a lot of different forks and variants of programs sort of appeared in the beginning. So the usability was actually extremely high because people could do everything they wanted with the product. And then we came and said, look, there are people outside. They're called users and they want to use this as well. And for them, the experience is just horrible. They just can't, you know, configure on code level. It's <laughs> nothing you can sort of ask users for. So I think both, going back to your question, I think both sides are extremely important. At least there are at least two sides. There are more sides to design than that. But just to make it, you know, a bit easy, you have the artistic side, which is extremely important. You have the scientific, psychological side, which is extremely important. And most important is that all parts work together, talk to each other, understand sort of what they want to achieve, and they have to convince the programmers. And that's sort of, I think the fundamental problem we have in open source design is that we are usually not the ones doing the code. We'll always have to find and project somebody who will actually code the ideas we have. And that's something, for example, I see as a big problem in a lot of projects and why we are not sort of stepping forward fast enough with the visibility of, of free software. I agree with that. I think it is a hard thing that designers don't tend to code. One of the questions I have and I've been having more often or recurring recently is where's the limit of what a designer is? I mean, you just mentioned that you're not an artist. That's cool. Like I'm not a crayon artist at all. I haven't touched a crayon in 30 years. I wouldn't call myself a crayon artist, but I occasionally doodle. And so where does that leave me on like the, the artist side, right? Does a doodle count or not? And I'm just curious for you, you have all this experience in psychology and usability studies and UX, and that's all design in some way. 
And I'm just curious, where's the limit of what design is? Because I would say that those early coders, you know, making that geeky software that has all these configurable things in the back end, were designing a system, but I wouldn't call them designers. And I'm, I'm just curious where your perspective is on where the limit of what design is. Well, they were doing design because they had to. They had to create some experience. They were not doing it sort of in a professional or informed way. They were doing it as good as they could. So the limit to design for me is, is very, very broad. I personally, for example, right now I'm involved into an initiative where I would still call we're doing design, but right now I'm not doing anything visual, but we're trying to design a alternative system to the current surveillance capitalistic system we experience right now. Yeah. So this is for me still design because we want to shape a tool. We want to create future and that's all design. Personally, for me, I have a very broad idea of design. I mean, there are professional people doing design and they are good in a certain aspect, but they're not good in other aspects. I don't know anyone who covers every aspect of design. So design is the process in which sort of all people work together. If they are sort of trained or not, doesn't really matter. They work together and you are better off if you have trained people at important places, because then you'll get much better results in the end. But if you have nobody who's trained a designer, you will still have programmers create a UI at the end. That's a good answer. I think. Splitting it off into professional and unprofessional is another interesting way of viewing design, right? Like if you do it professionally and it's called designer, then you're a designer. Otherwise, you may just be doing design, but you may not be well informed. One of the questions I have for you because of your, again, your broad background and your length of time in the field is that you must have been asked several times, how do I set up a usability study for my project? What do I do to make sure that, you know, I know how the users are using my project? Do you have any straight from the hip advice for projects that want to have better usability studies on their work before they think about redesigning it? How would I go about for any random project like implementing these things? Yeah, find somebody who's responsible and trained for doing exactly this kind of stuff in your project. Find a contributor that's doing a usability study on your own as being the designer and creator of it is very, very dangerous. We all know about the problem of social pressure and questions that sort of lead the answer being suggestive and stuff like this. And it's very, very hard for involved people to gain proper feedback about what they're doing unless you're trained to do this. That seems shocking to me. I thought there might be some way of just setting up a usability study, you know, and like paint by numbers type kit. And maybe that's a misunderstanding, which is great. So it's good. I've learned something. Thank you. You can do this. There are tons of traps and you have to interpret the data you get. And I just would say sort of, you will even don't know which questions to ask. What do you actually need to know about the users? And this is something that's not been done in a single usability study. But what you need for a project is a usability strategy. And that involves sort of getting to know who are the actual users? What are they using your product for? Which users do you actually want to support? Are you interested in all kinds of app uses of your product? Do you want to make the experience for those people better? And this is our fundamental problem. In commercial software development, non-free software development, companies are doing these kind of studies on a large scale. You can't 
avoid that you provide your data to those companies. I mean, the big web companies are known to do online experiments with their users just to see you know, where the conversion is getting better. And they have a massive potential of usability strategy and willing and unwilling participants in the usability studies. And for me, this is one of the reasons why something like the year of the Linux desktop never happened, even though it was promised to me since I started using Linux was each year it was promised this year, the Linux desktop, it will be the year of the Linux desktop. And we're not getting there because it is so hard for us to create those usability strategies. We don't have access to the users because we treat privacy as a high good. I'm happy that you brought up the subject of privacy. And I'm also interested that your latest endeavor of being an activist on privacy. So how do you combine these two things? Wanting information right from the user and nevertheless respecting their privacy. How does this tension work out for you? My fundamental problem really is that on the one hand side, I need to know everything about the users. And on the other hand, people should just keep their data on their own premise and not share it because there's been done a lot of bad things with this data. At this point, I actually, I want to recommend, I don't know, you probably all read it, but I really have to recommend the book from Soshana Suboff, I think she's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. For me, it was a mind-blowing piece of work summarizing really the problems that actually arose with the privacy issues we have and with the way we use technology today. So she basically describes the struggle I have. I always try to set up data-friendly surveys and we did do a lot of online surveys and I tried to convince people to do that, but I always had a bad feeling about this. And I mean, I knew how we treated the data, but we never know who sort of taps on the data beforehand. And if it's really sort of just in your hands or not, we were always very transparent with what we did. And we published a lot of blog posts and, and, and stuff about the work we did. But it was actually until two years ago where I met some guys who were actually thinking in the same direction and are trying to set up a alternative to the current system, fully open source. It's called Poly Poly. And that's the initiative I joined today. And I think we can solve this problem because basically what they do is they want to create an infrastructure where all the data stays on your own premise. So basically, if, if somebody wants to know something about your behavior, about you, about how you use things or what you use, they will have to send a, a sort of an algorithm to you. And this algorithm can learn on your data and sort of only gets back aggregated. So. You have an infrastructure that is providing absolutely control over your own data. And it's also set up as a cooperative. And this is where I try to engage right now and try to help them to move forward and to be good open source citizens and to actually create an alternative which would solve my personal struggle. Because with this structure, I could very well live and I think we would also sort of equal the playground again between commercial projects and the free software projects we're working on because within the structure we can keep our idols of, you know, being privacy concerned and asking precise questions who we need answers to. We can 
create this within this, this structure. So I'm really excited and looking forward for this project to actually fly and become sort of reality. And hopefully, I really do hope that this or a similar initiative, I mean, that's the good thing about free software is that other people can work on these kind of things and the ideas are all free and they are all, you know, documented and if other people fork this or find a better alternative, even better. But if this would fly, it would provide a great framework for a future with privacy and free software and good digital society we can live in. I like that. I assume most of our listenership is, I haven't done usability studies because we're not surveillance capitalists, I guess. But I assume most of our listenership is designers working in open source, often alone in their companies, mostly probably previous guests or other people interested in this sort of topic, people in the open source design group. Thinking about surveillance capitalism always gets me pretty down. I'm not going to lie, right? It makes me feel kind of sad. It makes me feel like I'm powerless. There's a good quote on the Wikipedia page about this, where Sam DiBella, writing for the LSE blog, criticized the book's approach which could inspire paralysis rather than praxis when it comes to forcing collective action to counter systemic corporate surveillance. I don't want to, with my energy of sadness and confusion and paralysis, to cause others to become paralyzed. And so I love that you're making initiatives to counter surveillance capitalism through better usability and better design. I guess my question for you, the immediate question is, what can the average solo designer at a company do to help design systems that are less likely to turn into capitalist surveillance systems and more likely to actually care about the needs and desires of their users. Obviously, we could join initiatives like open usability. We can talk together about the issue. I just wonder if you have other approaches that people can use to think about how to actively create a culture of praxis around anti-surveillance capitalist work. I wish I had an answer to, to be honest. It's okay. It was a tough question. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it is. It is absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it would be so good if there was sort of a simple answer to this and we could say, hey, to be honest, I mean, uh, the surveillance capitalism is a working business model and it's pretty well working business model. And it's making it extremely hard for everyone to leave this system. Here's another approach to it. Instead of asking what can we do immediately? What small tools do you use? What small routines or patterns do you use in your work to bring up this topic in a way that isn't so heavy? Because a lot of designers right now are sort of hired on their optimism and hired on, I'm going to make everything cool and shiny and great. And we're going to talk to the users and then you'll love them. And it's like, it's wonderful, but it's hard to also bring into those conversations. But surveillance capitalism is rearing its ugly head right across the mountain. So I just wonder, how do you make this light? How do you make it cool to talk about the users and privacy and their desires? Do you have any tricks that you use to make that easier in conversations with your colleagues? I don't experience this as a problem. Yeah. And so I just try to sort of think through sort of situations I'm coming in. So for my professional work, I'm in the lucky situation that I didn't sort of have to bother with surveillance capitalistic companies yet. So from a professional work, all companies I've been working for sort of delivering an actual tool that has, and their business model is around selling this tool and not selling data. And they, and I know that they are not collecting any data. So that's no problem there. And free software sort of everyone is aware of the problem. So we always try to find ways, which is 
problematic from time to time, but we always try to find ways that are privacy concern. So also there, I don't really have this problem. The problem is in broad society because will only change the world. You've seen a change is possible in the WhatsApp world. So now everybody is sort of changing to signal, at least sort of, I noticed this. I know how long I've been lobbying for little steps like this. I personally had a great success kind of recently when I freed the phone of a friend of mine finally and installed the EOS alternative operating system on his phone just to get him off the surveillance capitalism. What we have to learn is that we have to reduce and be active ourselves. I mean, to be honest, your invitation page is hosted on Google. Why do you do that? That's kind of exactly sort of a symptom of what we're, you know, it is not normal to act anti-surveillance. You can do this. I, my, my home automation is based on home assistant. There's no data going out. My phone is running EOS. There's no data going out. Yeah, I'm using the Tor browser whenever I can and whenever it makes sense. Yeah, so I mean, you can live your life without producing too much of a digital footprint, but you have to want it. So what can we do is we need to talk about the problems and we need to show and live alternatives. I'm not a messiah or something and trying to sort of tell people, go ahead. What I'm telling people is, look, what I do is I have this and this and this system. I have the same comfort as you. My phone is working just as yours. I can do anything with it. I'm not being followed up all the time. And that's, for me, it's important. If it's not important for you, okay. Yeah, but think about it. There is an alternative. And that's also what you said with the book from Shoshana Zuboff. It's an analysis of the situation and it's not a, a recipe for a way out. And that's something we have to work on. All those people who understood the problem. And if there's something I would ask our design colleagues is to be open to those alternatives, to those projects that try to change the system. We will need your help because we will need you to join our system as an alternative system. So yes, you can do something, but until then, just try to avoid using Google Pages for inviting people for an open source podcast. Uh, you can easily do this with other tools and not provide Google with this kind of data. That's fair. And I think there's a wider discussion around that, which is my way of saying it's not something I'm totally proud of, I guess, right? There are other ways I could live my life and other ways I could invite people. Sometimes we use BBB instead of Zoom. Zoom yeah. right now is how we're recording this for those of you who don't know, but it's also sometimes BBB fails and I used to use either pads all the time and then either pad went down and I haven't found a good alternative yet. And it's all a matter of time and effort and you have to care. So thank you for the reminder to care and to think about how I interact with the world. It is a good thing to think about. I want to move us away from this topic partially because I'm uncomfortable and I'm just going to go out and say that because I always feel like I could do better but also partly because we are running up on time. And so I want to make sure that we have time for a couple more questions. One question that I had, which I haven't been able to ask yet, is you mentioned go out and find someone professional to do usability studies. Don't try to run them yourself as a designer. It's very hard to do that when you're in a project because you have all these biases that need to be accounted for. And you may not know what questions to ask. This strikes me as something that open source projects should definitely ask for more. 
hey, we're looking for someone to help us out with running a usability study of our project. I haven't seen a lot of projects do job placements or adverse or advertise this sort of position. And so I was curious if you have any examples or templates or ways where you can make it like if I was an open source project, how would I go about getting this type of person? Do you have any suggestions for making that process easier? I think it already is easy. I'm not 100% up to date, but there is this open source design group active and they have a job board. Yep. So I mean, just go there and post it. I think the major problem is that projects should sort of ask themselves why they're not doing it. And I think there's a lot of false self shame in there because they know they have been doing all they can and they know they're not good. And now they sort of ask for someone to tell them that they have not been doing so well so far. And that's more a problem of how do we create the need in this, in these projects rather than sort of being technically providing more easy ways of asking this. I mean, that's perfect way of open source design does this. It's just, it's just perfect. Let's have a job board and that's it. So everyone can go out and look so. The question really for me is what can we do to actually reach out into those projects and telling them, hey, don't you want to look for an open source guy without telling them your UI sucks? That's sort of always the second connotation that comes in when you enter a project and say, look, I'm an open source guy and, and a design guy and I would like to help you out. The reaction often is, oh, oh yeah, you know, and you don't really find someone willing to help you code the stuff. But I've no answer to how we can achieve this. I've always been going into those projects I find important for myself. I'm always kidding. And I say, when I retire, I want to have a computer that is designed perfectly for myself, <laughs> which obviously is not true because I'm doing user work. So as things asked, if projects may not necessarily come out to say they need help with usability testing and all that, I know that sometimes when I advocate for open source projects, we talk about like, designers meeting up with the maintainers and then proposing to do some changes, ready notice and all that. So if I was a new designer or I was new to open source and I wanted to, you know, contribute by usability testing, what would be the perfect way or how would I approach that community or project maintainer to say, I've been watching your work project and I think I could help in this aspect. So if they're not coming to us, designers are going to them. So how do you think we can go about doing that? Be friendly and gentle. Go up and say you're interested in the project because you should basically join projects mainly because you're personally interested. They should have some relevance to you. Go in there, talk with them, ask them why they have done certain decisions, why certain design patterns you perhaps find questionable or have better ideas in mind. Show them that you can provide value somehow to this project by providing good, constructive feedback to open discussions that are going on. And the, the open source is always about what you have achieved in the past. So you will have to work your way up until you get recognition. That is how open source systems, how open source communities usually work. So. The maintainer is not the king, but usually that person that has sort of shown most commitment to the project over the last years and has sort of earned the title he has or the position he has or she has. And if you want to do the same, 
then you will have to sort of start with small steps and, and show that you're valuable, that you're committed to the project and that you can do something to make it better. And the more you do this, the more people will trust you and the more freedom you have and the more changes you can trigger. And at some point in time, you can even sort of question the whole UI and say, okay, we need to do a totally new approach and you are able to sort of iron out all the mistakes that have been done in the past. But that's a long way and you shouldn't expect to go there and say, hey, I'm a designer and I know better. And people will just say, hey, we are doing this for years and we have a successful product and who are you? And that is actually not meant in a bad way, but that's how open source works. And it works pretty well most of the time, but you know, you can't expect to be the king just on your first day. Work for it and you will get the recognition. That's for sure. Well, it's obvious to me, Bjorn, that you have worked for us. So thank you so much. Guests, if you want to follow up with Bjorn, he is not on Twitter. He is on LinkedIn, which is okay. You can probably message him there, but he's also on polypoly.org. We are happy to have you here. So thank you so much for sharing and talking about it. I really appreciate it. This conversation has been excellent. It's not over yet. Now we have Spotlight. Spotlight is part of the show where we talk about projects or people which have really helped us out in the past and which we think are wonderful and just should have more light shed on them because they are the best. So Memo Esparza, what is your Spotlight today? My Spotlight today is a simple but powerful tool for getting colors right, a color collection for your designs. It's called uiconors.app. So you just input one hex code and it helps you figure out the rest of the tints. So really easy to use and really powerful to get out. Nice. Thank you. Victory Brown? So my spotlight project for today would be Anvil. Anvil is like an open source community. Currently, they've been talking about ways to monetize open source projects and also like give rewards to contributors and just building projects that support or support projects that are trying to have some form of grants for contributors as well. So that's the projects. Thank you. My spotlight today is Hold Fast. Hold Fast is a movie that was made on a computer with a 30-day return policy from Best Buy by Moxie Marlinspike. Moxie Marlinspike is, of course, the founder of Signal. And he and some of his friends bought a beat-up old yacht fixed it up and sailed around for a while without any qualifications or insurance or anything. If you want to be a sailor, you can do it too. This was the direct reason why I ended up buying one and lived on one for a while in the Mediterranean. So huge influence on my life, this short video. And I just love it because it's really funny to hear everyone you signal now and then always think back to the time in university when I first saw this movie and immediately was like, where can I go buy a crappy, crappy boat? So thank you, Moxie, Marlon Spike, for that. Bjorn, what is your spotlight today? Yeah, you are in the lucky situation that you can do a spotlight each week or each podcast. I have only one chance to go. And I've been thinking about this, so I have taken something totally boring. It's KDE. It is settled technology, but it is, for me, it was sort of the community I was involved in most I was growing in this community a lot. I love the people working there. They're all my friends and I have hundreds of friends by this all over the world. And this is what I think the greatest thing open source is about, that you meet people from everywhere with every cultural and every background you can imagine. 
And this community has, um, it's not only the community, but it's also the technology we as community are providing, which is running my daily life for so many years that I've decided to sort of spotlight KDE today, not because it's exciting new technology, but it's really what sort of for me is the most important piece, single piece of technology in my life. I mean, you're in the lucky situation of getting to choose the one thing. I've hosted almost 200 podcasts. I'm running out of spotlights. So that's an amazing spotlight. I wish I had more like that. And yes, that is what open source is all about. Diversity, friends, community, meaning. This has been just such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing from your wisdom and experience. And I feel like I've learned a lot and we'll try and switch away from Google Docs. I will attempt to do this and find a workable alternative. So thank you so much and uh, yeah, take thanks. care. Thanks for having me. It was fun for me too.